And the glorious thing about Christianity is that the God of the abstract, as it were, the transcendent God of the universe, He doesn't remain simply in abstraction. He doesn't just remain in the realm of ideas. But as you know, the God who is transcendently, majestically presented to us in the pages of Scripture has also condescended to come down and to interact with His creation through His redemptive activity on planet earth. I hope you know that. I hope you know that the God that is, the eternal, the omnipotent, the omnipresent, the omniscient God of the Bible has broken in on His creation. You know this from the very earliest pages of Scripture. After the fall, what man needed was intervention. After the fall of mankind, what man needed was for God to condescend and come down as Savior and to intercede on behalf of man and to break in and save man because man cannot save himself. And so God did that by way of promise. God gave His gospel promise to our primitive parents, to Adam and Eve, and He promised them that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. God also revealed Himself in the waters of judgment through the great flood, but not before making redemption for eight souls. And that redemption really is a glorious prefiguring of the redemption that is in Christ, our ultimate ark, our true structure, our refuge, our safety from the waters of the wrath of God. It is in Christ Jesus that ultimate rescue is found. But God reveals Himself throughout the pages of Scripture again and again. He reveals Himself in the Exodus through mighty deeds and mighty acts of redemptive power and a flaming fire, a pillar of fire, in fact. He reveals Himself through great judgments and plagues of all kinds and delivers His people through the wandering of the wilderness of temptation. But we know ultimately that this was all so that the people of God would know God, would be comforted by God, so that they would know that God is with them. Uh, Jacob, for example, if you would turn with me to Genesis 48, he knew that the God, just to make it personal, one person, Jacob knew the faithfulness of God. He knew that God was with him. And that's really what I want to convey for us today is that God is with us. He is here to commune with us, to, to encourage us, because if you are anything like I am, you need encouragement from the living God on a regular basis. You need to know that God cares. You need to know that God is with you. And Jacob knew that. Genesis 48 beginning in verse 15, after he's, he's getting ready to bless the sons of Joseph here with these beautiful words, he says, he blessed Joseph and he said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, watch this now, note this, you can't skip over this, this is, uh, this is everything here, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. And to this very day, God is your shepherd, if you are in Him. The angel, watch this, who has redeemed me from all evil. He says, bless the lads. 
May my name live on in them and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow in multitude and in, in the midst of the earth. In other words, he wanted them to know the God that was with him. This is the knowledge we are after. This is what we want to know. We want to know that God is our shepherd, that in all of our life down to this present day, God is with us and he has not left us. He has not forsaken us. For us, however, the good news is that we are not looking forward to some redemptive act. We are not looking forward to some prophetic vision. We are not like Jacob waiting to wrestle with an angel to get a dream about a ladder coming down out of heaven. For us, God has spoken in a final way. Turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 1 because, and you should know this, our time in Hebrews Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, God has given us something of a climactic nature, of a finality, of a consummate nature. In other words, God has revealed to us, not in piecemeal, the grand redemptive scheme of His work, of His plan, but we have come to the climax of it. God, after He spoke long ago, to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions, and in many ways. In these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son, who He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, and He upholds all things by the word of His power, when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is who Christ is. This is the final installment of God's redemptive acts on planet earth. We are no longer waiting for an exodus. We're not waiting for another flood. We are not looking for another angelic visitation. We have reached the climax at the cross. And like Jacob, it should comfort us with the knowledge that God is our shepherd for our whole life as we reflect on what He has done for us. And this is what Paul does here in Philippians. Look, look there at Philippians chapter 3 now. That is really the, the text that we're going to be working through today. Because there, he considers the great work of Christ and the person of Christ and what it means for him what it means for him. For the Apostle Paul, in terms of personal revival, to know was to grow. To know Christ was to be revived by Christ. Now, of course, this is going to beg one simple question for our sermon today. What does it mean to know Christ? What does it mean to know Christ? And for the Apostle Paul, He's going to give us at least three aspects or three answers to this that I have summarized here for us in classic fashion, three-point sermon. And the first is this. In order to know Christ and what it means to know Christ, we have to be willing to count our loss for Christ. Look at what he says there in the beginning of verse 7. He says, whatever, whatever uh, things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Oh boy, really hard not to just preach a sermon just right there, right? So much. This is what I mean by Paul here. He just decided to go into this digression of sweeping statements that cover everything about the Christian life right here. But he begins by talking about counting his loss. Now, let's talk about Paul. I think when, I, when, when preachers quote Paul, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we are tempted to think, I don't know how much I relate with Paul. After all, who was Paul? We'll just jump up a little bit further. Go to verse, verse 4. He says, I myself confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. This is who he is. He was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Now those kinds of statements might be the types of statements that we might think separate us from Paul. We think, well, I can't identify with a Hebrew of Hebrews. I can't identify with a Pharisee uh, of Pharisees. Uh, uh, I can't identify with someone that can say something like, according, uh, as to the righteousness that is in the law, found blameless. In other words, I am not a Pharisee. I'm not a religious Jew. But you know, the glorious thing about this is that the principle here is what's important. Not whether or not you and I can ever, and we will never, measure up to the legacy of the Apostle Paul, what's important is that we have a connection with Paul and the principle that he's setting forth with us here is that regardless of any accolades that we might be able to list in our own life, things that, as it were, are not bad in themselves, there's nothing necessarily wrong with them in themselves, but those things that we might think bolster us as a human, as a person, even as a religious person, that we can say with Paul that by comparison, those things are lost to us so that we might gain a knowledge of Christ. Paul is very keen on this. He wants to exclude from us any boasting of any kind in ourself. So he says in Titus, Titus 3.5, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. This is how and why He saves us. It's almost as if Paul preemptively, however, saw that we might be tempted to tap into that religious background that he's talking about. He, it's almost as if he, he preempts any objection that anybody might have that might even begin to say that, well, I don't know that I have anything like a pedigree like Paul because he extends it. He says... He considers not just those things as loss, but he says, moreover, look at verse 8, back in Philippians, he says, moreover, he says, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. All things, everything that we can think about, anything that we can prize, and really what this is talking about, therefore, is simple, 
This is a call to treasure Christ above all else. If we do that, it will not be hard for us to say, I count all things as loss. He says, I have suffered the loss of all things. Watch this, <laughs> because he doesn't, he doesn't cry over spilled milk here. Matter of fact, he says he pours contempt on the things that he loses. He says, I count them as rubbish so that I may gain Christ. A person that has not yet counted what they may, have, what they may need to lose for the sake of Christ as rubbish has not understood the value of Christ. Um. And this, is, this comes home very vividly to me, to me today, uh, as just this past week I had a conversation with a young college girl that uh, we were out doing uh, preaching at UNT, and she comes up to me and she asks me, I have a question, and I can tell that she was emotional before she even began to talk. And she said, I, I, I want to be a Christian. She said, I want to have been thinking about this, and I know that I want to be a Christian, but there are statements in the Bible, what the Bible says about my gay friends that I don't know if I can accept. So what does the Bible say? She already knew the answer. The problem was is that she was struggling with the cost of discipleship. She was struggling with what if God says all things to her? Everything has to be considered rubbish. All your old friends, your old family, your old ways of life, your old material possessions, everything, your old identity, the old man is going to be crucified. And if you don't understand the value in knowing Christ Jesus as Lord, then you will, you will be tempted to cling to those things just as that girl was. Clinging to her friends. And think about the sad tragedy of that. Those friends that she's clinging to now, how many of them will end up backstabbing of her? How many of those will end up just, you know, trading her in? How many of them will end up not wanting to associate with her? How does she know the way that life is going to turn out anyway? That's on a human level. But there is also an eternal logic here. And the eternal logic that's at work here is that we ought to do everything that we can in order to rid ourselves of the idolatry of anything that is transient or temporary or fleeting, something that we can't hold on to. For what? For something we, we can't lose. In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord it was Jim Elliot who says, as you may remember, Jim Elliot said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And for Jim Elliot, that meant his life, his comfort. That meant America. That meant safety. As he went over to the Amazon and was butchered by savages that he was trying to reach with the gospel but you see he gave up what he could not keep anyway and he gained infinitely gained what he can never lose and so this is what is lacking it is the same equation with Christ. We can't hold on to anything in this life. Everything around us, we can't hold on to it. If the, but, but, but to gain Christ is to gain something that you cannot lose. The problem is, is that we don't treasure Christ as we ought to. We often fail to see what Paul saw. 
or we forget, as it were, that Christ, what Christ really means to us. We don't understand and we haven't tapped into deeply enough what Paul meant by surpassing value. Because what Paul is saying there is Jesus Christ is incomparable. There is nothing that you can compare him to. There is nothing that you can stack up against him. Everything else begins to erode right beneath your feet. Everything else is reduced to the level, and Paul puts it politely for us, rubbish, which means something like manure. I won't get any more graphic than that. But you see what Paul's saying. It is dung. My religious background, my unbelieving family that's trying to keep me from Christ, my unbelieving boyfriend, girlfriend, the things of this world, material possessions, that career, that state of li- that lifestyle, that status of life. It is trash if it keeps you from Jesus. This is about having a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. To have a saving knowledge of Christ means that you know Him to be your Redeemer. Galatians 4.5 You know Him to be your Mediator. Hebrews 8.6 You know Him to be your Savior. Acts 5.31 You know Him to be the Lord. Romans 10.9 And you know him to be God, John 1.1. And you know him, brothers and sisters, we know him to be life itself. John 17.3. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the one and only God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I think it's the only place where Jesus says the word Jesus Christ. Because he is life. He is the source of life, the sustainer of life, the giver of life. He is eternal life. Only then will we begin to see everything as rubbish. We will begin to rightly esteem how poverty-stricken our lives really are outside of Christ. That's the second thing. It's not just counting our loss, but it's also for the Apostle Paul being counted righteous in Christ. So look at the text again. He goes from losing all things for the sake of Christ to then being counted righteous in Christ. He says that he may be found. It's one thing to to gain Christ. And then I, I think he begins to exegetically expound on what that means. He says that I may be found in him. Oh, brothers and sisters, that is the greatest treasure of all, to be found in Him. You don't want to be found outside of Him. When the great assize comes, the great judgment, when the judgment seat comes, when the great final judgment of all comes, whether that is through the parousia, through the second coming, or whether it is you're going to Him, you don't want to be found outside of Christ. You want to be found in Him. He says, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. He says, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So, for Paul, it was just as important for him to confess his spiritual poverty as to possess his spiritual riches 
in Christ. He says, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. And we may not speak like that because maybe we're not Jewish. And maybe we may not think like that in our day-to-day lives. But how many people do you know that are still in that pharisaical category? I was born into a Christian family. I was homeschooled by Christian parents. I grew up in the church my whole life. I was preaching once, and a gentleman walked by. I was preaching outdoors. I do that from time to time. A gentleman walked by me and he said, My son is a minister. So I thought, well, okay. <laughs> That's great. But people are banking on things like that. They think if they can just appeal to something on the level of the flesh, then they have some stake in this. No, 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 but for Paul, we have to confess our spiritual poverty and say, we have nothing. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. Even more than that, even just more than moralism, for Paul, he understood even the holy law of God, I am not able to keep it. So therefore, Paul knew where real righteousness was. Turn with me just over to Galatians nearby. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. Because at any time that we stake our claim on the law or obedience or we look back on our baptism or we talk about our, our conversion story or we look back at our church membership and anything that we may be tempted, listen now, to make the foundation of our right standing with God. We had been better ready to... We'd be, we'd be ready to... How am I trying to say this? We had better be ready to grapple with the antithesis of what Paul is about to say here in Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. He says, For as many as of the works of the law, that would be somebody like Paul prior to him being saved. He is someone who who was of the works of the law. In other words, he was a Pharisee trying to earn his moral righteousness by obeying the law of God. He says, as many as are of the law, watch this, are under a curse. What? For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. You want to start listing things that you think make you morally righteous? You had better have a list as long as infinity. Because you are going to have to meet everything that it stipulates in the book of the law to do, and and you would have to have done them. That's the curse. The curse is, this is a standard that hangs over me like a dark cloud, a weight. It's like Pilgrim's Progress. It's like Christian's burden on his back. It won't go away. Nothing that you do, no matter how much you try to earn it, how much you try to understand it, no matter how much you read the Bible or go to church or give your money or pray or or try to mingle in with Christian people and try to associate with people who have salvation, salvation will not rub off on you. Salvation cannot be caught like a disease. Salvation is a supernatural, sovereign act of God wrought in the heart of man by the Spirit of Almighty God. And he says, now that no one is justified by the law before God, it is evident. 
And it's not just because there's no such thing as perfect law-keeping. Look what he says. The principle of faith is rooted in the Old Testament. He says the righteous man will live by faith. In other words, he quotes Habakkuk to substantiate the doctrine of, of, of salvation being by faith alone. This is where the reformers got their doctrine of sola fide, passages like this. And he says, however, the law is not of faith, but on the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. This is the This is the weight of it. This is the curse of it. Again, you are bound. You are duty-bound to the law to keep it all if you're going to claim any moral righteousness by way of the law. Christ. That's the good news, isn't it? Thank goodness for verse 13. Christ. Oh. There's the burden of man. There's the curse of the law. There's the inability of man. He cannot keep the law. He cannot earn his righteousness. And oh, the word Christ comes in as the good news. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. That burden, he bore the burden, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come, uh, uh, might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. In other words, it is Christ who keeps the law for us. And more than that, my dear friends, it is Christ who bears the curse of the law for us. I don't think we get that. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 21. I might have showed some of you this before, but this is something that staggered me the first time I heard it. But the law has so many stipulations, so many requirements. The details are vast. Hundreds of details to the law and how it's kept. The curse is consisting of all of this. One of the things that the curse of the law consists of is this. If you had a rebellious child, guess what you were to do to that child under the Mosaic law? Well, you were to put him to death. If they were so insubordinate, they brought shame on the parents to the point of the fact that the child was incorrigible. It was unsalvageable. Look with me for a second because this is marvelous. Look at Deuteronomy 21 beginning in verse 18. If any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother, and, will, and, and when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them. This is rebellion, and the same law tells us rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Then his father and mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of the city at the gateway of his hometown. They shall say to the elders of the city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death. So you shall remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear of it and fear. There's only one problem here, folks. A lot of stubborn, rebellious sons in the history of Israel. Did you know that? And you don't have a whole lot of chapters that talk about Israel actually performing this this form of capital punishment. As a matter of fact, you have episode after episode where child after child did not get punished in this way. Think of Absalom. And yet, who bore the punishment for the rebellious children? Who bore the curse 
of the law, even for those who did not bear it themselves, but deserved it. Do you remember what it was said there in uh, John, I think it's John chapter 1, where Jesus says, you know, John the Baptist came to you people, and he didn't drink, and he didn't eat, and you said he's got a demon. And Jesus says, but the Son of Man, he came to you eating and drinking. Do you remember what the Pharisees and the people of Israel were accusing Jesus of being? Right here. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Jesus bore the curse for the rebellious children of Israel who deserved it even though he did not deserve it. It's not by coincidence, my dear friends. Let's keep reading. Verse 22. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is put to death, you, and you hang him on a tree... His corpse shall not hang all night on the tree. You shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. This is exactly what, Gal what Galatians chapter 3 is quoting. Deuteronomy 21. Jesus became a curse for all of us. Every one of us. Because we were so poverty stricken. Because we had no righteousness of our own. All we are is rebellious children. Isaiah says they are cursed children. We're so rebellious. But this is where true wealth resides, is in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor. So that through his poverty, you might become rich. See how that works? God, the Son, leaving all of the riches and the glory and the splendor and the effulgence and the holiness and the perfections and the tranquility and the glory of heaven and becoming poor for your sake. Lowering himself, as Philippians says in chapter 2, becoming as nothing, coming in the form of a, of a servant. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He dwelt among sinners so that we would become rich in him. You see why Paul is saying, I want to be found in him. The one who earned it all. The one who has the righteousness that the law requires. The one that fulfilled the moral requirements of the law. The one who obeyed God perfectly, both in his passive and active obedience. That is, both in his suffering and in his obedient life. He obeyed the Father perfectly for you and I on our behalf so that we would become the righteousness of God in Him. If we are found in Him. But it doesn't stop there for the Apostle Paul. We have to count our loss. We have to be counted righteous in Christ. But to know Christ also means that we commune with Christ and we conform into the image of Jesus Christ. Back to Philippians, beginning in verse 10. Philippians 10. He says here, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, 
being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. See, for the Apostle Paul, well, Paul would have been thought very, very strange, a strange man in modern day evangelical times. Because Paul, when he wants to get intimate with Christ, when he wants to get deep with God, he doesn't speak about being a theologian. He doesn't begin by talking about going to a Christian concert. As a matter of fact, he begins by saying, I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. I want to know him, listen, in the fellowship of his sufferings. How many of us even have the strength to utter that? To know him in the the fellowship of his sufferings. He's saying, in some form or fashion, I want to partake of the sufferings of Christ. In other words, I want to be able to identify with the suffering servant of the Lord. I want there to be some reflection of the perfect suffering of Jesus Christ in my own life. Oh, not that my suffering is going to redeem anybody. Certainly it is not. But it will conform me to his image. Nevertheless, did you see the emotion there? Oh, and I hope, get emotional there because he says, that I may know him. And I think every commentator, commentator I wrote spoke of Paul's ambition. This is Paul getting emotional. This is no stoic, folks. This is Paul yearning and longing and saying, oh, that I may know him. This is a deep desire. This is a holy ambition. This is what Paul wanted to do. This is what he aspires to do in life is to know Christ. There's one thing I can say about Christianity today is that we are very distracted about other types of ambitions. Let's be honest. Christians are very good at Christianizing everything, right? Yeah, the world has Halloween. We are going to have a harvest day at church. The world has, you know, uh, Easter egg hunts, and we're going to do, you know, we're not going to call them Easter eggs, but they're going to look like Easter eggs. We're just not going to call them that, and we're going to do little scavenger hunts in the, you know, parking lot of the church. We're just very good at trying to Christianize everything the world does. But it does, you know, it affects our, our, our pursuits in life as well. We get so excited about the Christian business that we're going to start. We get so excited about the Christian career that we're going to have. We get so excited about the Christian house that we're going to build for ourselves. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong. Don't judge me. I'm not here to be a legalist. I'm not your Pharisee following you around with a list. But I am just kind of checking our heart to say, what is it that we have all these ambitions for? Because what Scripture would say is, they better in some way, in some form or fashion, they better facilitate fellowship with Christ. They better be a means to a more noble end. Not just having a successful entrepreneurial business that can appear on Shark Tank. But having a purpose for your riches in this world if you are rich. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 5, tell the rich to be generous, not to put their hope on uncertain riches. Many have pierced themselves through with all sorts of damaging wounds because they have put their hope and they they have fixed their aspirations on money that makes wings like the proverb says and flies away. But to commune with Christ, to be conformed to Christ means that He is our ultimate ambition. 
He's our ultimate ambition. He is everything that we want. And, 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 and this quality of life cannot wane. We cannot allow this ambition to wane. This is, I'm so concerned about this in my own heart. Trust me. So many have waned over the years. I can't tell you. Friend after friend, acquaintance after acquaintance, even pastor after pastor, who used to have a zeal, indomitable, a fire burning bright, a, a heart for God that was as large as the world. And it wanes over time, and you ask them what they're up to lately, and they begin to rattle off all these earthly ambitions that are not comparable to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And so we had better, as Jude tells us in the book of Jude, Keep yourself in the love of God. It's work. Keep yourself in the love of God. You need to be able to identify pitfalls, obstacles, traps. You need to be identify the schemes of the devil to keep you away from the love of God, to keep your heart cold from the love of God, to keep you apathetic about the love of God, to make you to zap your zeal and your passion for Christ. It is not about our passion. Don't mistake me. I'm not saying that your passion earns you a special place in the kingdom of God. It does not. But it is for our everlasting good that we remain in love with Jesus Christ. And it is the quality of a spiritual life, if I could, it is the quality of the resurrection life that we love Him. This is what it means to walk in newness of life. Romans 6.4 Therefore we've been buried with Him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. He says, we too, we too, we too will one day be raised from the dead. No, 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 no. no. You went too far. Paul says, we too might present active walk in newness of life here and now. What is the principle of the resurrection? It means that power, that glorious, divine, triumphant power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, that spirit, Romans chapter 8 says that the same spirit that rose him from the dead, he will give life to us. And guess what? That life begins now. Romans 6 is kind of giving us an inaugurated eternal life, an inaugurated resurrection life where we walk in newness of life here and now as new creations, new creatures. And it has everything to do with how we suffer. I was on the phone with a friend the other day. I'm actually going tomorrow, flying to California to go visit this dear friend of mine that some of you know about who's not doing well, struggling with kidney failure, and um, I love this brother dearly, and um, it's going to be very rough for me if something goes wrong with his health, but, but I love him dearly, and I'm, gonna, I'm catching a flight because i got to go see him because I talked to him on the phone, and he didn't sound good. He didn't sound like his old, his old self. He has this booming voice. He's a big man. He used to be a power, power lifter in his younger. He's 70 now, 
but he used to be a power. This guy used to bench press 500 pounds. I mean, this guy was an amazing human being, and he's one of the most knowledgeable people in the Christian faith that I've ever met. He's got three times as many books as I do. He's in the walking encyclopedia, and he's a gentle giant, and he's a wonderful, beautiful soul. But let me tell you what really shined off his beauty to me this week. As I called him, he could barely talk to me on the phone, and the first thing he began to talk about was the glory of God in the midst of his sufferings. He mumbled, he stumbled, he could barely talk. This is a man with the best vocabulary I've ever heard in my life. Barely able to utter a few words to me on the phone. And what were the words about? Those words were about how he was trying to figure out how is this for the glory of God? How can I make this for the glory of God? I don't want to be laid up. He was, try, he was trying to tell me, I don't want to lay on this bed if it's not for his glory. I don't want to waste it, in other words. And Christ left us that example that we would suffer like he did. Peter says that he left us an example to follow in his footsteps. So just like Christ, how he glorified God by refusing to return evil for evil, we too would suffer well as an example to others. Suffering, let's be honest. Suffering is where communion with Christ really meets the road, right? That's where we really find out what kind of metal you're made out of. That's where we really find out who we really are in Christ. That's where we really begin to be able to examine ourselves in the light of reality when all the facades are gone and you have nobody to impress and all the spiritual superficialities are removed and all you have is Barely the strength that you have and your God and the reality of eternity. And you begin to get real with God. Well, it's not just for the present life, but Paul gives us the, the whole enchilada. I didn't mean to make you hungry, but he gives us the whole thing right here. Verse 11, conformity to the death of Christ, the sufferings of Christ has a goal. Paul says, in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. You see that there? This is the Apostle Paul with an eschatological state of mind, an eschatological outlook of life. In other words, he viewed things, he viewed things in, light of, in light of the last day. He viewed things in light of his resurrection body. I know we are all concerned with this body here and now. We try to do everything that we can. We diet for it. We work out for it. We eat well for it. We buy expensive organic food because we're trying to take care of this decaying and corroding and dying body. And I don't even know how, anyway, we won't get into organics, but <laughs> there's debates on all sides. I eat them, mostly because I have to, my wife, you know. But the, the body that we should be most concerned with, as it were, is when this body is transformed. I'm not going to say a new body because that would be theologically inaccurate. Know that the body, think about it this way, isn't this glorious, getting doctrine right? Got to get the doctrine right because it's, it's special, it, it's meaningful. It, it is not that the, the preacher can stand here and tell you, wait till you get a new body. That sounds good, but this is the truth. Wait until your body is renewed. Doesn't that give you hope when this body is giving you trouble? 
When this body is the body that is sick and needs medicine and can't get out of bed and you got aches and pains and, it, and this body is terrorizing you, isn't it wonderful to know that this body is the body that God is going to revive and renew and restore and resurrect and become glorious so that you will be conformed into His glorious image? I like that. This body is going to be redeemed. That's why this body is not a throwaway body. That's why this body cannot be abused. That's why I don't believe you should burn this body. You should bury it in light of the resurrection. Here, I gave you my conviction on cremation. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Just kind of scoot down a little bit there because Paul takes us to this final resurrection, as it were, the ultimate and final conformity to Christ looks like this. Our citizenship is in heaven. Are you making yourself way too at home in this place? How about politically? Well, guess what? Your citizenship, the most important thing is that your citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transform, watch this, same body, remember, the body of our humble state, I tell you, my friend Mike sitting on that hospital bed right now, he, he's in touch with this. Our sister Crystal, with everything she deals with in her body, she's in touch with this. It is a humble, lowly state. I know the world tells you your body is to be flaunted and your body is to be shown off and that's all that you see the world doing but really, the reality is, is that our body in this life is a humiliated state. It's a humble state, a weak state. But He's going to transform that into conformity with the body of His glory. Think of that. Oh, I can't wait for my body to be resurrected into the glorious image of Christ, never to die again. My body, I don't know what I'll be able to do with my body, but I can't wait to find out. I can't wait. My wife asks me questions like that. Real, she really does. What are you going to do in heaven with your body? She'll ask me a question like that as if I know. I don't know. But I know that it will be so glorious. I can't wait to find out. If I can eat physical food, I can't wait to eat it. I'm sure the digestion process is going to be perfect. Nothing will hurt you. You won't need anything to be organic. You won't need to spend more money at the store to get the good stuff. It will all be the good stuff. And guess what? Your body will never de develop diseases. Your body will never begin to break down again. You will not experience pain anymore. You know what Revelation says? Revelation 21 that all the things of the past will be passed away. The former things are gone. All things have become new. And you will experience all those new things in a newly resurrected, conformed into the image of Christ's glorious image body. Why? Because He has the power. He has the power even to subject all things to Himself. That's another reason why Jesus is incomparable. And He's with us. Even now, this is what I want to leave you with. The Christ who will one day raise up your mortal body and put on immortality, he is with you now. What did he tell the disciples at the Great Commission in Matthew 28? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He is with us. And let us say with the patriarch Jacob, he has been the shepherd. 
Our whole life, he's been our shepherd. I hope that you can say that. If you can't say that right now, don't leave this room. And to go to your knees if you must. Go home and ignore everybody except Jesus. Do business with him. Know that you know that he is your shepherd, that he is the one that will be with you your whole life, and that he is the angel of the Lord, as it were, that will redeem you from all evil. Father, who can begin to even tell of the glorious person and work of Jesus Christ? Lord, we can talk about the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. But you mean it. You wrote it. And we need to live it. And so, Father, we pray that you would conform us as we commune with Jesus more and more. When we commune with the almighty triune God of the Bible, may you transform us more and more into the glorious image of your Son, Jesus, that we may become more like him now and knowing that we will be more like him later. That we, when we see him, we will be even as he is. And Lord, let those promises fuel our fire for Christ today. Lord, our world is filled with things that want to lure us away. This world is full of passion. People are passionate about everything. Passionate about politics. Passionate about money. Passionate about looks. Passionate about health. Passionate about possessions. All temporary. And everything that will be taken away. But Lord, help us to have a holy ambition. To be able to say with Paul with the same earnestness in our voice that we may know him, that we may be found in him, so that we would know him and the power of his resurrection, and that we might attain, receive the reward of the resurrection from the dead.